Hello, Simon Rimmer here with you for another episode of Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I speak to world-renowned chefs about their passion for food. We found out where their culinary journeys began and why they keep marching down that path, which, in the case of today's guest, might be self-explanatory. We shall see. Uh, we also explore the practical side of cooking both indoors and out with a few tips thrown in for good measure which you can hopefully put to good use in the kitchen or on the barbecue. Now, amongst those who've already joined me on the podcast, Paul Ainsworth, Angela Hartnett, Najee Hussain, Harry Bikers and James Martin. But today, it's royalty. We're grilling Michel Rue Jr., a true giant of the industry, son of Albert and nephew of Michel, the brothers who revolutionised the restaurant business in the UK when they opened Le Gavroche in 1967. It famously became the first establishment in the UK to gain one two and then three Michelin stars and still going strong under Michel's expert supervision. He's also a regular on our screens, has written several cookery books, dreams of cooking for Eric Cantona, which is where I have a problem with him because he's a Man United fan. Uh, Michel, welcome <laughs> to Grilling. Um, but before we get into you, I've got something that came up on social media yesterday that you and I need to discuss, and it's a very important kind of cooking discussion. Tom Kerridge, he of two Michelin stars, said yesterday on social media that he likes tomato ketchup or macaroni cheese. And you responded by saying, get yourself back to reality, chef. What on earth is Kerridge doing? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, tomato ketchup with mac... No, it's just wrong. I'm sorry, Tom, you're wrong. Not, yeah. even, not even brown sauce. No. Yeah, it's just completely wrong. But it did make me investigate a little bit more into you. And, and, the, <laughs> uh -oh. and the secondary kind of point that we need to raise before we kind of get back on track is the fact that your secret guilty pleasure is tinned fruit. True? <laughs> yes. Wow. I do. I love tinned fruit, don't you? No. I hate it. I've always hated it as a kid. You know why I hated it as a kid? Because my mum used to serve it. You see, remember you used to get those blocks of vanilla ice cream? Rather than, yeah. a, rather than a tub. Yeah. So she'd cut a slice of vanilla ice cream, then she'd put the tinned fruit on. But then she'd also put some of the the the, the syrup on it, yeah. and it made the ice cream melt slightly. Yeah. So, it always, yeah, so I didn't like it. And you particularly like the cherries, which are the worst bit. Uh, I don't like the cherries. Oh, you don't like the cherries? No, I, I'd push the cherries aside, right. but everything else in tinned fruit, yeah, I'm sorry, it's out there, guys. I love oh. it. Okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> now I know you don't like the cherries, and that's an absolutely reasonable thing for a three mission solid chef to kind of like tin fruits. Don't whatever you do tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, no one's listened to this anyway, so, so it's absolutely fine. Right. So do you think it was always your destiny that you were going to be a chef? Definitely. Absolutely. 100%. Um, if not a chef, definitely in the hospitality industry. Um, I, I love every moment of the day. Well, Maybe not every moment. There are days where, where, I'm, where I'm kind of tearing my hair out. But yeah, yeah, it, it's a challenge. And I think, you know, I, I love it. I don't consider it a job. Um, I get up in the morning and it's a new challenge. And, and that, I think that's part, part of the, the love of hospitality industry is that every day is different. Yeah. You know, every day is a different challenge and different, different ingredients come in your kitchen and, and there, there are different uh, hurdles to, to jump over. So uh, I, I love it and would never have done anything other than being a chef or being in the industry. So what's your earliest food memory? Gosh, earliest food memory? Um, probably, um, well, let, let's, let's wind back even further. Let's go, okay. let's go back to day one of my life. Wow, that is an early yeah. food memory. That, that <laughs> really is. Um, my mother went into labour whilst she was helping my father cook. Uh, my father was in a private house 
and uh, like kind of upstairs, downstairs, or what's the most more recent one that people would remember? Um, uh, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. Yeah. So he was the chef, the only chef for a private house. And uh, my mother was helping. Um, and so it was a two-man team, as it were, in, in the kitchen. And she went into labor, uh, literally, whilst they were cooking dinner. So rushed to hospital. Uh, Dad finished <laughs> serving, of course. Serving, of course. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was born in Pembury Hospital in Kent. And the, the very next day, mum was out and I was out too, literally, <laughs> and in the kitchen because there was you know, no other way of doing it. And, you know, there was no nannies. Or no, you know, I was in the kitchen in a cot, in a, in a professional kitchen from day one. So I suppose I was imbued with the sounds and smells and, uh, uh, of a professional kitchen. And I do distinctly remember at a very, very young age, and I, and I mean very young age, being in a pen in a, um, underneath the kitchen table or in the professional kitchen, being given bits of puff pastry or flour and stuff to play with instead of plasticine. Um, and, and I do remember Uncle Michel practicing his sugar work um, because he was big in competitions. He really, you know, he was always entering competitions, pastry competitions. So I remember the smell of caramel and I remember the the cracking of caramel you as a professional chef yeah. would know what I mean you know when you pull sugar yeah. and you hear that crack and uh, and and seeing these beautiful pieces of art made out of sugar and he he would occasionally break some and I would get the little reward of a broken petal of a rose um so all those memories uh, you know stuck with me but one particular memory and I think I was about 5 possibly possibly six, uh, of dad making vanilla ice cream. Right. But he didn't have an electric machine, you know, one of these fancy packer jets or carpajanis. It was a pail, and I mean a pail, a wooden pail, uh, where he put crushed ice with salt, and that brought the temperature down even further, and a metal cylinder with wooden paddles. And you had to crankshaft it, you know, to turn the, yeah. the, 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 the crankshaft to make the pedals spin. And he put the vanilla ice cream mix in there, so creme anglaise flavoured with proper vanilla, and had to churn it. And it would take about 20 minutes to do it by hand. And I remember as a child churning this with dad, probably only churned it for a couple of seconds, but, you know, I made the ice cream. Yeah. You know, as, as a child, you think of it as being your ice cream. And the reward was to have that first scoop of vanilla ice cream. Uh, and to this day, this is, you know, it's my favourite ice cream, vanilla ice cream, got to be. So lots of memories like that. So when you were, when you were growing up then at school, so were you just surrounded by food? So you do the school day, and then mm. what what was home set up then? Yeah, so I, I always say that I was brought up as a French child in uh, in Kent because my and my first language was French um, because my parents had just arrived in England, yeah, uh, and they didn't speak any English or very very little. Why did why did they come over? Um, well, well, Dad fell in love with. Uh, with Great Britain, as a young chef, he came, he came over uh, and did a stint in Ireland um, for a lord uh, for the summer months as a young chef. Uh, he actually did a scullery job at Cliveden as well when it wasn't a hotel, when it was privately owned. And he just fell in love with, with Britain and the way of life. Uh, and he, uh, later on, as a young chef, he said to, because he was working at the um, uh, British Embassy in Paris, and he said to his head chef there, if ever a job comes up in Britain, please consider me. I want to do it. And, you know, luck had it that uh, a job came up and he was sent over and uh, and then brought, obviously, yeah. uh, my mother 
and uh, just fell in love with this job and stayed uh, in this private house for nearly eight years uh, as chef. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, growing up in Kent uh, w was just wonderful because it, it was in the countryside. Dad was there every night, and and because you know, in private house, you you finish early, and yeah. and it's and I grew up on the estate as well. I, I've uh, I remember growing up on this beautiful estate, and it was a wonderful childhood. So being a, so being brought up as a French child in Britain. So at school, were you a novelty then? Mm, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was learning English. Um, as a language, and 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 it was very difficult in my primary school, and uh, and uh, and I remember the primary school; it, it was wonderful, and I even remember my my head teacher there, and uh, Etty, uh, and she actually looked after me when Dad and Mum were working. So you know, after school, uh, the, the school food was was horrendous. I mean, it, it really, it really, well, I say horrendous. It, it was mince, uh, <laughs> packet mashed potato, and things like that, you know, uh, and jelly, and and that vanilla ice cream or slab that you were talking yeah, about, yeah, tin yeah, fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it, you know, it, it, it's nonetheless wonderful, wonderful memories, and and uh, yes, yeah, stuff that uh, I suppose food memories in many respects as well, because that's maybe why I like tin fruit as well. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I wonder how many times I can get tin fruit back <laughs> over the next hour. So, school food being rubbish. So, does that mean obviously your upbringing? You were always surrounded by kind of great food. Um, well, great food. Great food. I think we have to sort of uh, explain. Great food would have been uh, food that's very simple, not necessarily expensive or fanciful. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I, you know, childhood memories, I remember going out with dad foraging, you know, I mean, foraging now is, is considered, you know, really trendy and, yeah. and, you know, and all chefs do it and all this, but, but I did that as a child with dad and it was only normal. We would go out and gather snails, for example. Yeah. Uh, we would go, we would go ferreting with dad. Dad had ferrets and we would chuck them down the, down the rabbit hole and, and net the, uh, net the, the rabbit holes and collect wild rabbit and, and that would be, you know, dinner. Yeah. We would go fishing, coarse fishing or river fishing and not put the fish back. We would actually take them home and eat them. Yeah. Um, much to the chagrin of the local angling club. They go, Look at those <laughs> foreigners. They're, not only are they fishing in our rivers, but they're taking the fish home and they're eating it. Taking <laughs> our fish. <laughs> yeah. And gathering our snails. How dare they gather our snails? <laughs> Do you want to eat them? <laughs> oh, no, you eat them. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, um, things like that and mushrooms and all of that. And actually on the estate, uh, that, that we grew up, that there, there were wonderful streams um, where there was wild uh, watercress, for example. We would pick the watercress. I remember doing that. Chestnuts as well. Um, wild, proper, real wild strawberries. And, you know, all of those things. So that was real food, proper food. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because now we accept so much of that as being the norm, if you like, for, kind mm. of, you know, for, for the way that we look after food. But around that time, it would be fair to say that the UK's reputation for food mm. was pretty, pretty poor. It was indeed. It, it was really bad. You know, in the 50s and 60s, it certainly was, uh, wasn't great. Uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons as well why Dad thought, well, hang on, you know, I might be an opportunity here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but but it was it was incredibly, incredibly bad. I mean, we take it for granted now. You know, walk down yeah. a supermarket aisle and you can pick up anything. Um, you know, at any time of the year, uh, which. Yeah, that's another that's another problem. But you know, the fifties, sixties, it was before even the UK had you know joined the EU, so it was it was difficult to, to, to get produce over. I remember, you know, as a kid, members of family, cousins, uncles, aunties, 
grandparents coming over to visit. And in their suitcase, they would have, you know, some really nice stinky cheese, some camembert, <laughs> some, you know, things like that, some saucisson, some charcuterie, uh, and, and lots of other stuff that, that you, olive oil even, even bloody olive oil, for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, you can even buy olive oil in a chemist yeah. back yeah. in the day. Indeed. So, you know, um, it, it, that, that, that also was a treat. So when did you, when did you become actively involved in food then as a kid? When... Uh, when Dad opened up Le Gavroche, which was 1967, that was it. I, I didn't see Dad. You know, that, yeah. He was gone from the family because he was working all hours. But Mum was a superb cook, I mean, and she still is now, a, a wonderful cook. Um, so she would cook all, all the food at home from scratch. Uh, and as a family with my sister, we would help. We, you know, we would peel the vegetables and yeah. do, you know, get involved in it. Um, and so that, that was great. So I suppose at a very young age, you know, from, from um, early teens or even before that, I was, uh, you know, enjoying food in, in, a, in a different way, enjoying food in as much as I was really interested how it was being cooked. Yeah. And then um, at the age of 16, I, um, I, I said, I don't want to go into further education. You know, I just want to do my O-levels, as it was in those days, yeah. <laughs> O-levels, and leave, just get on with it. So at the age of 16, I, I, you know, I thought, hang on, what do, I, what do I want to do? I want to go and work as a professional chef. I, I don't want to go into further education. I've done my O-levels. Was there pressure from, you, from, from your dad to do it as well, do you think? Or was it no. almost... No, right, okay. No, definitely not. I mean, he, he actually said, look, you need to get qualifications. You need to go to school. You need to do your education just in case, you know, one day you, you don't want to yeah. be a chef and you've got something to fall back on. But I was adamant, you know... I, I, 16, I want to, I want, I just, I just want to learn a profession, learn a craft. Yeah. And, and I want that craft to be in a kitchen. So I did my O-levels, which I did okay. I did, but not, not great, you know, okay. Well, then what did you get? <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to think now. <laughs> uh, French, obviously. Obviously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope you got an A in French. Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine you didn't know C. <laughs> so French O-level in, uh, uh, written and language, of course. Yeah. Uh, I did English language, which I, I did really well. Uh, history, which I did well. Art, I did well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was it. Five. Okay, right, fine. Okay. Five, five O-levels, which was okay. And I excelled at sport. I, I loved sport at school um, and, and really, really, you know, enjoyed that part of school. So, yeah, that was it. I said to Dad, no, O-levels, I want to go to work. So he said, well, look, if you want to come, come into the profession and you want to be a chef, the best thing to do is do an apprenticeship. And not only the best thing to do is an apprenticeship, but actually start in pastry. Right. Do a pastry apprenticeship first. So why? So the theory behind that is that it's, it teaches you a certain rigor and precision that maybe you don't get in the main kitchen. Because pastry is all about... You know, science, isn't it? It's science. Yeah. It's science and it's, you know, you've got to be a, uh, meticulous and it's all about you know, recipes, following recipes to the gram. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then there's a bit of artistry as well. And, and so the theory is that if you've got that under your belt, um, you can then go into the kitchen rather than going into the kitchen first and then, and then a few years down the line, trying to go back into pastry is always a bit of an issue yeah. or, or difficult, more difficult. So I did a, a pastry apprenticeship in France at the age of 16 in Paris. So, you know, you, you've had a, a, a lovely upbringing, living on an estate in Kent. Mm. And then at 16, okay, and obviously you can speak French, which is obviously a huge yeah. advantage. But like leaving home and going to work in Paris, daunting or were you ready for it? 
between you and me? Yeah. The age of 16 in Paris without your parents? Ah, okay. Fine. <laughs> Daunting? <laughs> it was great fun. Um, for the first two months, three months, sorry, I stayed on Grandma's couch. Okay. Because... Um, um, couldn't find them. There were no digs uh, available, and um, and you know I, I think it was probably a good move the first three months to to stay on Grandma's couch. Uh, Grandma didn't have a, a very big flat, just a single bedroom. In fact, she didn't even have a bathroom. She had a toilet, but no bathroom. So we had to wash in uh, in the kitchen in a little basin. It was a very very small flat, very humble flat. Yeah. So I had the couch, and for three months uh, we we you know. We, we, I shared that that flat with Grandma and um, Grandma Rue on on some of my father's side. Yeah, and then after that, we managed to there were there were digs, you know, bedsit. So yeah, a room basically the size of this this little studio. Yeah, and uh, and then after that, well, that was, that was party time. That was great fun. So I was I was literally burning the candle both ends. Which, so how, which you do, you know, at the age of 16. hours, because again, you know, there's, there's a lot said about our industry about, you know, that mm. we need to change working hours, and which, which I agree with. But back then doing an apprenticeship in Paris in pastry, I would imagine you're putting some hours in. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the hours were brutal, but, but I, I absolutely adored it and loved it. And it didn't stop me going out and, yeah. and you know, and, and, and being an absolute, yeah. Plonker, plonker of a teenager, but <laughs> uh, coming in worse for wear. Um, and uh, yeah, no, no, the, the, hour, the hours were tough, but but most enjoyable. And the boss was incredible. He, he really was. He led by example. He was there before anybody turned up and he was the last one to leave in, in the afternoon yeah. or in the evening, you know, and, and he inspired inspired us all. We, we would have walked, you know, over hot coals for, for that guy. Was it a tough kitchen? It wasn't shouting. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the, the, there were no arguments or shouting because he commanded res- he commanded respect because he he did every single job that was there right and he was there first thing in the morning last thing at night and no job was too small if the kitchen porter didn't turn up he would do his shift uh, if the drains were blocked he would roll his sleeves up unblock the drains first which i think i've taken on board and and i still do now when i'm at work and the kp doesn't turn up i do my shift i'll do an hour yeah, uh, and it's really strange because when when you guys have just you know, started in the kitchen, they, they they go to me and they say, "Chef, it's okay, I'll I'll do it, I'll do it, it's okay." No, no, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do my I'll do my little shift. I mean, a few weeks ago, we didn't have anybody to polish the glasses. I, I spent a whole service polishing the glasses at the Gavroche. I mean, little little do the guests know that actually the glasses that they were drinking their wine out of, I polished. <laughs> so you know. It, and I think that's important. So I, 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 yeah. I, I learned a great, great thing from Monsieur Elguache at that time. So how long was the apprentice? Uh, two years. It, it was it was a two year apprenticeship, and uh, like like I said, it, it was it was yes. I, I learned a craft. I learned a skill, but I also learned uh, life skills. But I had a good time as well. Yeah. So do you, do you think that, that whole thing about starting in pastry, is it something that you would encourage young chefs to do now if they're going to mm. work at the highest level like yourself? That that's a, still a great way in? I, I think so, yes. It's definitely not two years lost. Um, it was two years gained, in my view. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, you you run restaurants and uh, pastry chefs are worth worth their weight in yeah. gold at the moment. Uh, so, yeah, I would definitely say do a couple of years uh, in pastry at the beginning of your career and it's under your belt and you know it's it's there so once you've done the apprenticeship what happened then um so then i went well i actually then i did a little stint in a butchery shop 
Um, so learned uh, butchery, did uh, six nearly uh, actually no, I did six months in total. So I did I did three months in a butchery shop and three months in a charcuterie shop, wow. learning how to make pates and hams and such like. Still in France? Yeah, yeah, still in Paris. Yeah. And then, uh, then I came back and worked a bit uh, in the company with Dad, uh, waiting for my military service, uh, because military service in France was still uh, active. You still had to do it uh, at that age. So at the age of uh, 20, no, 19 and a half, 20, I went to learn how to be a soldier. I just want to backtrack before we do the show, because I mean, I'm, I'm really intrigued by that bit. Do you think that you look back at, at your career and how the industry is changing now that oh have we become too obsessed with money do you think mm. in in all workplaces not just in our yeah. industry whereas when you're doing that you're clearly not thinking about well i'd rather work there because i can get an extra couple of mm. francs an hour kind of thing it was about saying for me to be a rounded chef yeah i need this entire skill set therefore i'm willing to wait yeah i think so i mean i <sighs> It, it, that's a difficult one, Simon, because some people go into the hospitality industry and see it as a job. Mm. So want to earn a living, you know, a great living out of it immediately. And others will go into the hospitality industry because they want to, because they see them, they, they try and project themselves five, 10 years further. Yeah. So they want to, they, they see themselves opening up a Mission Star restaurant and such like. So they think, you know, I, I need to gain experience here. I need to gain experience there. And they think long-term. But I think that even if you have got that idea that you want to go long-term and you're thinking, I need experience rather than money, you should still be paid. Of course. You know, yeah. should still be paid well and not expected to be working crazy hours. It's not because I worked crazy hours or dad worked crazy hours that we should expect that now. Yeah. So I think you know now that there must be a change, and and we've it has changed for the better over the you know the last few years for sure. Um, but there's still an improvement. We could still do more. Yeah, I completely agree. But it's it's funny because when we when we had Jason Atherton on mm. the podcast, and he was saying that because he set his sort of what he wanted to do, he washed pots at El Bully because yeah. he couldn't get a job there, and he went and sort of did that because he felt this is my my only way into it. Do you think there's a little bit of that has been lost? I mean, I haven't yeah. said that. You must still get a lot of people who say, listen, I'll come work. And, and, and you're right, you know, people should get paid. People go, listen, I know there are no jobs, but I will happily come and kind of do this because I just want to kind of be under your, your tutelage. Yeah, I think that has kind of been lost, um, sadly. And I think a lot of young chefs now, or young professionals, uh, are signed up in agencies. And the agency will then push them here, push them there, offer them 10 quid more a week here or whatever. And, yeah. and, and young chefs no longer knock on your door or very rarely. As an aside, Jason went to El Bulli because he could, because he could travel and work in Europe. That's gone. That's another debate and another Ugh. story. But yeah. freedom of movement is a two-way street. Yes. And for me personally, that really fills me with, with chagrin and shame that we have taken that away from that possibility to go to Italy, Spain, whatever, and just knock on a door and say, I want a job. I so agree. We've taken away that that tremendous freedom yeah. from from ourselves and from our children. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's another debate. Yes. 
which could get pretty heavy. You know, I said he was royalty. <laughs> All right, so let's go military service. Yeah. Um, so did you enjoy it? Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Even the the hardcore soldier training bit, yeah. uh, which is two to three months, um, where you you learn how to shoot, you learn how to dismantle your rifle um, in the dark and clean it, and God help you if there's a grain of sand in there or uh, you know that that it's not put back properly and on time. Wearing the fatigues, uh, going on bivouac, and the discipline, um, and and being, you know, what I really enjoyed as well was being together as a team, and it didn't matter what your background was, what your ethnicity was your gender, whatever. You know, we were 30 guys together and there were some kids who were obviously from very, very wealthy families and other kids from the back end of Paris that had, you know, nothing. That didn't matter. Once you were there, you put the uniform on, you had your head shaved, you just obeyed one order and you were all together and you had to look out for each other's backs. And I loved that. There was just total respect for everybody. It's funny you answered exactly how I hoped you were going to answer that because I I, I still do um, a little bit of work with the British Army as a, as a mentor mm. for for army chefs and every time I see them that whole thing is so tremendous that great equality yep. that sits across it but I do feel that that is also very true of our industry I think one of the joys of hospitality and I started working in hospitality in nineteen eighty. And exactly what you said about the army, I've always felt with hospitality. Mm. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, what your orientation, what the color of your skin is, what your religious beliefs are. It's it's beautifully inclusive industry. And I think it's only in, in very recent times when the rest of the world feels like, well, the catch up going, yeah, it shouldn't really mm. matter what it is. Hospitality's always been that. It has and it hasn't. I mean, it, yeah. It should be in an in an ideal world, but there are yeah. there are still some some dinosaurs out there, sadly. Of course, but yeah, I fully fully understand what what you're saying, and and yes, you're all together as one. You're a team. So when when you're at you know in the middle of service, you're helping each other out, and and you know you've got one one aim, and that's to get the food on the pass together. And uh, yeah, no, I I absolutely adored my my time in, in the army. At first, I thought it would be just a total waste of time, you know. And and but no, the the training was tough, um, very tough. I mean, you know, even you know, gas mask um, uh, initiation and training, where uh, we were thirty of us uh, um, taken into a a warehouse, pitch black, and the gas masks were at the end of the warehouse, but there were five missing. There were only 25 gas masks. And uh, the sergeant said, right, we're going to turn the lights off and the, the um, tear gas yeah. can is, is going to be set off and the door is here, off you go. And uh, that was it. So we had to fend for ourselves, run to the end uh, and get the gas mask on. But he said, I'm not letting any of you out until all of you are behind the door. You, you're not leaving anybody behind. It, I mean, it was a complete mayhem, and we were coughing and, and spluttering and everything, but no one was left behind. We had to bring everybody out together. How did you do it then? It, <laughs> God knows how we did it, but <laughs> but we did. There were a few punches thrown uh, at the beginning, but then shouting and and screaming, and then we realised, hang on, it's either we all get out of here, or you know, yeah, it is 
survival of the fittest, but it's also survival of the group. Mm. Uh, and likewise, likewise, when we went on bivouacs, and uh, you know, it's uh, we were working as small teams. So you know, you you you've got a goal, and you've got to achieve that goal, but you can't achieve it on your own. You have to achieve it with the team. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, it taught me a lot, and I, you know I think military service still could play a role now. I agree. Yeah, I mean it could play a role. Maybe not teaching people how to fire a gun and how to you know clean a weapon or, or whatever. But when I was there, a, a, a lot of the guys learnt a craft, learnt a skill, um, so learnt how to drive an HGV, yeah. <laughs> which could come in handy now. <laughs> really, really handy. Really, really handy. <laughs> they, they did their 12 months in and came out with an HGV licence, Yeah, um, came out with engineering skills um, and so on and so forth, catering skills yeah. and so on and so forth. So, you know, the army can teach you, um, or military service can teach you uh, a skill and uh, and maybe get you into a, you know some form of employment. I sort of wonder whether what we need now is is kind of a pacifist military service almost. Yeah, but and you know military service. I mean, maybe we should call it something else than military service. Yeah, but helping the community kind yeah. of service, um, and and you can get a lot out of it. I think, um, and 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 it teaches respect, basic respect, respect for your elders and respect for for the people that you are working with. Yeah. Okay, so military service ends, then what? Yeah, military service ends, and then I did. Oh, then then I went to... How old are you now, incidentally, when you come out of military service? 20. Yeah, nine, 19 to 20. Okay. Yeah. And, well, actually, I didn't just do military service training to be an, uh, a, um, a soldier. Uh, I then got a job working, let's say job. I, I was then transferred to being a chef at the Elysee Palace. Uh, so part of my... Military service was cooking for presidents Mitterrand and Giscard d'Estaing. Wow. So, yeah. But in France, it's a lot about who you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that knew the head chef at the Elysee Palace. <laughs> and so, uh, all, of the, all of the chefs and all of the staff, actually, at the Elysee Palace are military. Yeah. Uh, so I managed to spend part of my time in, in some amazing... And how was that? Um, oh, absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I saw truffles being served as a vegetable. Um, yeah, things like that. I mean, just absolutely mind. I've never seen so much caviar in my life. I- extravagance uh, wow. beyond belief. And what, what about the, the skill set? So, you know, you, your background is obviously tremendous. You've done your two-year apprenticeship and you're in the military. Mm. So <laughs> the level of cooking there must have been high anyway, everyone yeah. was working at the palace. Absolutely. So uh, the... Um, the banqueting and and the, 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 the you know the uh, the state occasions were were tremendously well just just extravagant <laughs> beyond belief. But then on a daily basis, um, we had to feed uh, the president and all the um, ministers, um, and that was just French classic cooking. So you know you'd have daub de boeuf, boeuf bourguignon, you'd have your braised meat, all all kinds of braised meats. Uh, and very simple things, you know, like a, a proper beetroot salad with shallots and uh, properly seasoned uh, omelettes and such like. So it wasn't just the, yeah. you know, the, the the amazingly extravagant events, but there was also everyday life. And the president liked to eat well, but yeah. eat, especially Mitterrand, well, Giscard d'Estaing as well, but the great French classics. So it was a great learning curve for me too. How long? So how long were you there? Uh, a year. Okay, so so then, so now we're now we, we, we've hit twenty. Mm. You've uh, you've done military service. You've been a teenage Lothario uh, <laughs> in Paris, having slept on Grandma's couch. Mm. So did you come back to the UK then? 
Um, yeah, but very briefly, uh, briefly back to the UK to, to work a bit with dad uh, in uh, some of his restaurants there, because by then, you know, dad had expanded and got lots of different brasseries and restaurants all over London. And then Did I... You, were you aware of that as a... So coming back to the UK then, because I mean, you know, it, it's it's written, it's a fact that your family completely and utterly revolutionised kind of British cuisine. Mm. Did you see a change? Did you see a change in the way that people were regarding food then? Or were you still yeah. an island, do you think? No, 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 definitely. I mean, by, by the late 70s um, and early 80s, um, so by then I was 20, yeah, you could see a big change. Yeah. Uh, and not forgetting that then, by then as well, the, the UK we were in the EU. joined the EU. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, it was much easier to get produce over. Uh, and uh, that there were far, you know, a lot more French chefs coming over, Italian chefs, Spanish chefs. So it did change and quickly, very, very quickly. Yeah. It is weird because I remember that time. I remember my dad's brother coming over from Canada. Even then, as, as a kid, I remember us going out to a Bernie Inn. Mm. And I remember thinking how awful it was, <laughs> even as a kid, because like you know, you know, we'd see pictures of the food yeah, that yeah. you know that my Canadian relatives were eating, yeah. and we go and eat this dreadful. <laughs> and this is me, even as a kid, probably sound of 11, 12, 13, <laughs> thinking this is terrible. You know, being sort of embarrassed by yeah. it, mm -hmm. and you sort of think, what on earth were we thinking in Britain? Why did we think that that was that, <laughs> that rubbish food was okay? Which is such a shame because there is a. a a British heritage of food, and and there are some chefs which really highlighted that and and did it really well, and still do now. But you know there are some great dishes and some great produce in this country. It just needs to be done properly. Yeah, and it, and the, and it got lost. <laughs> I mean, it really did. You know, <laughs> it really seriously got lost. Generic cheese, generic kind of vegetables. <laughs> I mean, I, I just it makes me shudder thinking about it. I mean, on on another level, I remember because my my mum and my dad both cook. And my mum is a great cook. And I remember, because my dad's family are Italian, I remember my mum has always cooked a great lasagna. Mm. And I remember kids coming around for tea at our house. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and, you know, we've been sort of brought up in it. And they're going, I, I don't understand what this is. For them, for them, everything to do with pasta was spaghetti hoops. <laughs> Uh-oh, we're getting back into, into chin fruit territory oh, already. Oh, God, spaghetti hoops. <laughs> yeah. I, I, although I've got to be honest, I do quite like it. No, oh, shut up! No, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm into carriage territory. Uh, all right, so 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 you came up briefly and and worked with the family. Was it tricky working with your dad? Definitely, that that was tough. That was very very difficult, and he was very hard on me, and um, and I think genuinely harder on me than he was on the others. But yeah. <laughs> but no, but very tough. But I, I only did a short stint. It was in between jobs because then I went to. Um, Alain Chapelle in uh, just outside of Lyon, which was a three Michelin star restaurant. And, uh, and how that, many stars did you did your dad have at that time? Then uh, that was eighty. Uh, he got it in eighty one, so it would have been that year actually, the, my first year at Alain Chapelle. Okay, um, so he got the third star in eighty one. Yeah, yeah. So, so I did two years at Alain Chapelle, who who was at the time in the eighties. He was the I don't know what's the equivalent now. Really, I, I he he was breaking boundaries. He was. He was just a genius in the kitchen. I mean, Alain Ducasse worked there as well for two years. He was just such a, a, an inventive chef, but he, he was always true to his roots and, and that area of Lyon. So great seasonal produce, not messed around too much, but he had that little touch of inventiveness, which just 
broke the mold. I mean, for example, uh, one of the dishes, which um, a fish dish, which he used ginger, which back in the 80s yeah. was just unheard of. Yeah. Absolutely. Unless it was in a biscuit. In the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fresh ginger. And, you know, when I tasted ginger for the first time, I went, whoa, this is just like unreal. What is it? Uh, uh, and, you know, the, your taste buds are just going crazy. And, and my initial reaction was, well, we're supposed to be cooking French food. This isn't French. And then you realize, well, actually, it works really well with this particular yeah. dish. So he was, he was really clever, really, really smart chef. And do, do you think that that when you work with somebody like that, and, and again, I, it, it's... It's the heritage of your family. I would imagine there must be part of your sort of thinks, oh, I'm not sure whether I should actually embrace this because mm. you know what, we're, mm. I mean, you were, you know, you, you are, you know, you, 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 your food royalty. It was almost a part of you who want to go, oh, this is actually really, really exciting. This is something that, you know, we're not doing. Uh, yeah, de- definitely. Um, and, I, and I think that was even more so when I went to Hong Kong for six months. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So, after, after my two years stint yeah. at Alain Chapin, which, I, again, I learned so much uh, food-wise, but also how to be a chef and how to... No, how to be a owner of a restaurant. Because Monsieur Chapelle was one of those, again, who did not shout. He did he, Very, very rarely did he raise his voice. I mean, when he did, you knew you were in trouble. Yeah. But he didn't just do the cooking element of being, you know, restaurateur and a chef. He was also there to meet and greet every single guest. And he would also go round the room and inspect the cleanliness. And he would, the, the, the restaurant had rooms as well. And uh, I remember him actually saying that he was uh, explaining how he would go to every room and, uh, for example, sit on the toilet. So he would get the view of the yeah. guest uh, and lie on the beds. So he would look at the ceiling, get the view of the guest. So he was meticulous. He would also do all the flower arranging in the restaurant. Nothing would, you know, escape him. He was, in many respects, I suppose, a a total control freak. But he would put himself in the view of the guest and he would want absolutely everything to be perfect. So, you know, I I think that's one of the take-homes that I got from him. A really, really amazing guy. So how did Hong Kong happen? So Hong Kong happened because um, Dad said it would be great if I could travel. And, and see the world, which which is one of the great things. Which which uh, I, I suppose you think before we do Hong Kong, was it always a given that you would come back into the family business? Do you think? Um, I suppose that well, yes, Dad always wanted that, but I didn't. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I certainly didn't set off <laughs> as an apprentice thinking right in so many years I'm going to take over this business. No, that was the last thing on my mind, and it was certainly the last thing I wanted to do. But but I'm deep down. If, I'm pretty sure if Dad was still here and we asked him that, he would he would say, "Yeah, I did." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, no, that's no, so, I mean Hong Kong. I, I wanted to travel and I wanted to see something completely different. Uh, and Dad said, "Okay, well, look, let's try and get you to Hong Kong to do work. wasn't possible to get a work permit, but to do a a stage, as we say in the in the industry, or a work experience." Yeah. Um, so I managed to wangle a, a work experience for uh, six months at the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong, which was mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really, really, uh, you know, as a young chef to see that. So I I worked in every single outlet in the Mandarin Oriental. So every everything from the fine dining restaurant to the uh, Chinese uh, Michelin star restaurant, 
which was difficult because they, they didn't allow me to do anything and I didn't speak Chinese. So they just, I, I did more just observation and quietly chopping herbs and things like that in a corner. And, uh, and then the, the cafe, the room service, the, uh, and the grill. So I, I did every outlet. And then on my days off, I went knocking on doors. Funny we were talking about that. Yeah. Knocking on doors to try and get into uh, restaurants to, to see how they worked. Not all of them let me in. But they did let me in when I'd come with a crate of beer. <laughs> I, I found that that was the way to. Very good. So I'd knock on the door, and go, "Can I come and look? Look, you know." And and you know, we we, we managed to. Yeah, I, I managed to to get in. in some did you find any friends in Hong Kong? I my my best friend got married in Hong Kong. He was working out there, and I found when I first arrived in Hong Kong, I'd never been to Asia before. It was the first place I went to. I couldn't compute what I was seeing and smelling and feeling mm. when I first went there. When you we, we were in Wan Chai and I remember we got to the hotel and we went for a wander around and thinking, I don't even know what these smells are. I don't quite understand it. It's an absolutely sensory explosion. It is mind boggling, isn't it? It really is. The smells, as you say, and every street smells differently. Uh and the yeah, the hawkers and the the, the guys cooking on the streets and the uh, it is incredible and ingredients that you've never seen before. Yeah. And I guess, again, that whole thing about, and again, that logic, and you say, if your dad was here now, I'd say, yeah, of course, he was going to go back into the business. As a chef and, and mm. a lover of ingredients, yeah. that time must have been a huge, huge turning point for you. Absolutely. I mean, and, and different cooking methods. So cooking over high heat in woks, for example, um, steaming as well, steaming yeah. uh, stuff and, and double boiling. So, um, so steaming and, and cooking in a boiler, uh, think, things like that, and slow cooking, slow, you know, I mean, in France, we have all these lovely slow cooking uh, stews and such like, but but slow cooking in a way of the Chinese cook is like it was twenty four hours. Yeah, and I remember a broth being made out of heron, and it was in a clay pot in a double boiler, and it was cooked for twenty four hours. Wow! Uh, and then the clay pot was broken, and this stew, um, the uh, the the meat and the carcass of the heron was thrown away. Yeah, and what they wanted was the broth and it was crystal clear and they they allowed me to have a tiny teaspoon of it because it was precious and my God, the taste of it was just so intense and pure it was, it was just mind blo mind blowing so yeah there lots of cook different cooking techniques different ingredients and and just such an inspiration and also to be working in a five-star luxury hotel yeah. and to see behind the scenes the work that goes into running one of those. Uh, I mean, that hotel, I think, you know, anyone who's listened to this who is going to go to Hong Kong, that hotel, it's like its own country. <laughs> I remember going there and just feeling that I was, I was in some magical kingdom. Mm. Oh, it is. In fact, a lot, a lot of those five-star luxury hotels, they are. They run like a little village, aren't they? They're, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, just incredible. Okay, so, so after Hong Kong... Mm. What happens next? Uh, then I came back and again worked in the uh, in the company. Worked in a couple of the um, restaurants in the city because by then dad had a little. My dad and uncle had a mini empire. Uh, Gavroche and Waterside Inn, obviously Le Pulbo, uh, which was in Cheapside in the city, which was a, a one star and a brasserie. Um, and then uh, the uh, the Gamin restaurant, which was in the Old Bailey, opposite uh, the Old Bailey. A huge, huge brasserie, two hundred seater, a thriving outside catering business as well. Yes, I mean, and a central kitchen in Wandsworth Road, a pastry uh, shop, a charcuterie shop. It, it was, it was huge. So I, I was working in all and every one of these. Outlets. And was it different this time? 
because you come back and yeah. you were saying when you, you know when you first came back then it was difficult when you came back with more experience yeah. were you more useful to the business i suppose what absolutely absolutely yeah. absolutely and and i i you know i was an acting uh, sous chef in in a couple of the places and uh, and learning learning something different which was brasserie for example big numbers yeah. 200 covers uh, having to serve them, you know, uh, serve food in in a really tight amount of time, like you know, yeah. an hour an hour lunch, having to serve two hundred people three courses, it's tough. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's all about menu planning and margins as well, tight margins. So learning that as a young chef as well was really really important. All right, let's hold it there. And let's go into uh, into one of our sort of fun parts of this. So, so we do two things in this section. Mm. Uh, we do our uh, our barbecue and a. Uh, see what we've done there. Incredibly, mm. incredibly clever. I don't know how Ben thought that one up in the slices. <laughs> well, we ask all of our guests the same um, five questions. So, uh, I mean, do you barbecue? I suppose first and foremost. Absolutely, I do love. It. Who doesn't love a barbecue? I know. And have you always barbecued? There's always been that sort of outdoor cooking and. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember as a as a kid, Dad always barbecued, and in fact, he famously used to have summer barbecues where he invited all the staff round and uh, barbecuing definitely in the family. So, have you got a favourite memory then of, of of barbecue? Whether it be you know one of those occasions or one that you've done yourself? Yeah, I mean, the staff parties that that Dad used to organise with the big barbecues were were always epic. But I th- I think one one of the best barbecue moments that will remain forever was a wedding. Um, and it's for a, a dear friend of ours. Uh, and I won't mention his name, but, but dear friend of ours. And his, his daughter got married and it was in the summer. And he said, I want Gavroche food and I want you and dad to be there, but I want a barbecue. <laughs> and it, is it, that is a close friend. Yeah. And it was for, I think it was for about two or 300 people. I mean, it was big. I mean, we're, t- wow. we're talking big. So we designed the barbecues. Um, and I think, if memory serves me right, we had five bar- five. I mean, they were probably about as big as this table, actually. Uh, some with griddles and some with proper grills. Yeah. And all wood-fired and charcoal. And we had different sections. We had seafood sections, meat sections, vegetable sections, oh. fish sections. And, and it just went on and on. Oh, and a, and a pastry. Well, not pastry, but grilled pineapple, bananas, and, and such yeah. like that. So, so it... it it was massive, but we had to train the chefs, yeah, because you know barbecuing it, it's not just chucking a sausage on a no. you know it, it, there's a there's a real skill to it, and I don't profess to be in a you know you know any really that good at it, but as a chef, you've got your instincts, but it's not and not that easy, yeah. so you know you don't want to burn a whole load of lobsters and, and things like that because it could be very expensive, <laughs> so the pressure was on, but it but it was it was. It was marvellous. It, oh, really, it was really. But the smell was incredible. Oh, yeah. To do barbecue food for kind of three hundred guests yeah. of, of your standard of food. Oh, it was. It was incredible. <sighs> well, I wonder that almost sort of like the, the, one of the questions is what's the most ambitious thing you've done to barbecue? That, that, <laughs> I mean, nothing's going to top that, really. So you know, we've kind of we've covered kind of two questions in one there. I, I t- yeah, maybe. But I, I tell you what is difficult is barbecuing whole fish. Barbecued. Whole yeah, fish. It, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Whole fish on the bone on the barbecue is very tricky. <laughs> There's a fine line, isn't there, where it's just going to take it too far. Mm. That That is a mm. real, real skill set. Um, what about um, your favourite time of year to barbecue? Because I always say I'm a winter barbecuer. I like mm. that cold weather. I like the, Maybe there's something primal about yeah. cooking something on a barbecue outside in the cold. 
and you bring it in. I am man. I have flame. I have. <laughs> I have cooked lamb shoulder. Well done. Just do the dishes now, will you, love? You know, there's a bit of that. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I mean, we always. I mean, I, I don't barbecue that much here in London because, as I said, I'm you know got a flat in London and there's a small yard. Yes, we've got a barbecue there, but <laughs> this year's weather has been absolute yeah. crap, so we haven't barbecued much. But in France, my house in France, we barbecue. If I'm all summer, whenever I'm there in the summer, definitely we don't cook inside, always outside. But also if I'm there at Easter, and Easter isn't that good a weather, yeah. we, we'll barbecue outside and get the barbecue out. And I have been known to do it in winter as well, over Christmas. Yeah. I'd get the barbecue out and we'll barbecue something on there. I think it's just wonderful. It's nice. And yeah, you put your coat on and you barbecue, but you have a drink outside nonetheless. And- yeah. There's just something, I just find there's something really lovely about it. I've become quite obsessed with it. When I first started working with Weber, they sent me all these pictures of people in the mid-United States mm. barbecuing when there's three feet of snow. <laughs> thinking, Are you insane? But then no. when you start cooking outside in the winter months because the air is cold and there's more moisture mm. in the air, when you do something that's low and slow mm. on a barbecue at that time of year, it's so bloody delicious. Yeah. And that, and again, that whole smell, all those other senses mm. that come into it, 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 it is quite incredible. And I, I don't know whether I've actually got the, the nerve to ask Michel Rue Jr. <laughs> this, any barbecuing disasters? <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah. I, yeah, I can think of one which wasn't, wasn't much fun. <laughs> it, it was Christmas, actually. Christmas two, two years, three years ago. Yeah. And we were, we were in France, my house in France, and we had these beautiful ribs of beef. I mean, lovely, lovely ribs of beef. And we, we'd got them ready. Uh, and I said to Diego, my, my son-in-law, uh, we're going to spark up the barbie and, and do them outside. Uh, and he looked at me and he went, mm, uh, I, I, the weather doesn't look too good, you know. <laughs> said, Come on, let's do it. Let's get it out. And so sparked it up uh, and, and got it going, got the coals lovely and red, got the champagne out, started having a little sip of champagne. And there was this biggest storm you had Every, I mean, literally, and within about ten seconds, the coals were gone. It was it was a, a complete and utter yeah no no. So the ribs were cooked traditionally, roasted in the oven in the end. But but yeah, I we, bet you drank more champagne though. We did. We opened another bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's it. You go. I tell you what. Just we're kind of cooking in a slightly that, different way. I think that was actually that wasn't christmas it was boxing i think it was boxing day right yeah it was boxing day but anyway yeah so the weather sometimes can get yeah. the better of you yeah but actual cooking disasters i can't think of any i think i'm yeah i'll be disappointed if you i'm, I'm yes. so meticulous in preparation yeah, I, you know, i'm yeah i yeah i think i think what we need to mention at this point about kind of being sort of slightly in in awe of you is uh, michelle was on sunday brunch um a couple of weeks back and uh, in my ear, he was cooking this incredible souffle <laughs> omelette. And uh, in my ear, the gallery say, tell him he needs to take the, uh, the omelette out of the oven. And I, I said, I said, the gallery just said to me, that, and it said, the day I tell <laughs> that it's time for him to take the out of the oven is the day when I just hang up my, is the day I hang up my utensils and go, right, my, my time here is done. <laughs> I did put myself under a bit of pressure though. 10 oh, minutes for, said, It was so delicious. Fun. And it, it, it genuinely is one of the, the greatest things I've ever eaten on Sunday brunch. How anybody has the nerve to kind of do <laughs> an omelette of that complexity and get it right in an eight minute slot <laughs> is beyond me, but you, but you did it impeccably and bang on time <laughs> bang on time and it was it was i my description of it was that it was like a, it's like a cloud that an angel sits on <laughs> and when you have a mouthful it's like the angel has kissed you <laughs> and it genuinely was all right so next challenge for you so yeah. we we put all of our guests through our little 45 second barbecue challenge 
So what you get, you get any cut of meat, fish, or vegetables, mm. any kind of marinade or rub if you want one, and some kind of side dish. Uh, it's got to be cooked on a barbecue, obviously, and you've got to sell it to me as if it's um if it's a ch- as if it's a chat line. <laughs> um, and and you only have forty five seconds uh, to do it in. When we had James Martin on the show, I said to James, okay, I need you to imagine that I'm now kind of sitting here in my pants. I'm just oiled up and I've just phoned in your chat line. Really, really put him off his stride to describe what he did. Are you you ready for 45 seconds of, of, of proper barbecue food porn? Go for it. Okay, and go. Right, first you need a sea bass. Uh, I love sea bass on the barbecue. So I, this is a recipe I've done before. Sea bass uh, boned out from the back. So you remove all the bones. It's fiddly. It'll probably take you 45 minutes to just take the bone out. Stuff it with chopped fennel that's been stewed down with a touch of coconut milk and maybe a oh. little bit of ginger. And uh, then wrap this whole sea bass in a banana leaf. Mm-hmm. Really, really tight. A couple of strings, or actually you could use metal because it won't burn, and then slow cook that on the barbecue. Takes about 25 minutes each side for a uh, three and a half kilo fish, three to four kilo fish, um, and serve that with a rice. Again, a little bit of coconut milk, coconut chips, garlic, onion. Did I mention ginger? Yeah, ginger, lemongrass. Neat lemongrass, forgot lemongrass. Uh, and lime on top of that. Yeah, I think that with a nice glass of local white wine, Ardesh white wine would go really well. That is so delicious. That was actually one minute and six seconds. <laughs> Michelle Rue, so I'm not going to kind of stop him at any point at all. That sounds delicious, actually. That that does sound amazing. I mean, that thing about banana leaf, I remember the first time I had anything that was barbecue and a banana leaf, I was filming in Jamaica mm. a few years ago, and they, they cooked some snapper yeah. in that way. And that smell mm. it is just absolutely is. incredible. And it re- retains some of the moisture as well. Yeah, and that lovely thing as it chars yeah. and when you unwrap it. And you open it up. And it, it makes kind of, you know, cooking on papillotte sauce. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay, but you know what? Give me that banana leaf any day. Uh, that 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 is absolutely delicious. Um, and so... As a is barbecuing done as a as a family activity? Do you think there most of the time for for you? Rob? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Uh, family, uh, you know, because I, I think it's that thing of congregating around an open fire. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the same if you've got an open fire in, in your house, which which I'm luckily enough I I have in France. We spend most of the time either in the kitchen or around the fire, um, and and you know I think it, it's that it, it draws you. Yeah, it, it's it's something that draws true. you to it. It's, it's quite primal, isn't it? I mean, I always sort of think with the cooking it is. But you're right. You know, we have an open fire at home. Whenever it's on, mm. you can't help yeah. but but be there. Yeah, there's something about it, and you know, and it does it. It brings it brings you brings you to, towards it. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It maybe yeah. it is primal. Probably is. Yeah. All right. Now, before we go on, I just want to let you know about a special offer at Weber.com forward slash grilling. If you want to improve your skills on the barbecue, Weber are offering you a discount to attend one of their grill academies. Now, that's where you learn to dazzle your friends with your barbecuing expertise by learning from serious masters of the art. And they are. I mean, the people that teach these courses are just off the scale. The offer is valid for grill academies in the UK. Enter the code GRILLING21. That's GRILLING21 before the 15th of October at Weber.com and get £50 off when you book two tickets on a course. You can find all the information you need at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Now, also, the Weber website's a good place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons. 
and a fantastic range of recipes. Whole roast, superfood stews, you name it, it's there. All right, so we, we got to the point where you're back. You're you're helping run what has now become quite a considerable empire mm. for, for the Rue family. Do you stay in the business then? Yes. So then um, then I'm, I'm oh, actually, no, 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 after, no I, I did a stint at uh, Tonclair with Pierre Kaufman. Ah. With the wonderful Pierre. Wow. Yeah. And how was that? So I did a year there with Pierre, which was incredible. I mean, he is a, you know, a master, an absolute genius in the kitchen. Um, and, and again, somebody who very rarely shouted um, and, and just led by example and, you know, a great, great chef, um, a master, a master of flavor as well and, and extracting flavor from ingredients. Fantastic chef. So I did a, I did a year with Pierre, and then uh, and then came back again to the uh, to the family. So where it, are we then? What year are we in now? Then oh gosh, it sort of been mid mid eighties, mid mid to late eighties. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I mean, it, it's in between each job. I, I sort of came back to the family and worked um, in you know in the brasseries. Did you know then that the draw of the family business was almost getting too strong to resist? Now I I kind of guessed it, but. You know, it, it wasn't what it certainly wasn't something that I was aiming for or wanting at the time. Uh, and in fact, when I did end up at Gavroche, it was by chance because you know, I was working in, in the brasserie in one, one of the brasseries in the city. Uh, and the old man phoned me up and said, um, pastry chef's gone on holiday for a month. Uh, I need you to fill in at the Gavroche. Yeah been there ever since <laughs> right <laughs> he, he he got me um so yeah i filled in for the pastry chef for a month and uh and then i think somebody else obviously the sous chef i think went on holiday did and... you love it was it you know because gavroche it, it, it's an institution did that feel like this is where i should be um no definitely not not at the beginning um i was filling in uh, and then I was filling in, I was filling in, I was filling in, and then sous chef goes, head chef goes, and I'm, I'm constantly filling in. And then before I know it, I'm, I'm in charge of the place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the old man says, see ya. <laughs> I got ya. <laughs> so, so, so did you, were you able to, to stamp your mark on it then from the outset, from the day that you became head chef there? Very difficult, Simon, because, you know, it'd been open for... Uh, 20 20 something odd years and um it was already uh you know a destination mm. iconic restaurant and and a, a huge following loyal you know guests so i would have been foolish to, to rock the boat and 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 you know change everything uh was, did you want to oh there was lots of things which i wanted right to okay lots yeah. lots of things i just felt i couldn't i uh, couldn't change it too quickly so I tweaked the menu and tweaked certain things, and and one of the first things I, I, I did actually was was actually um, drop the tie rule, because in those right. days it was jacket and tie, uh, and I think in the second year I was in charge. I said we've got to stop this bloody tie rule; it's really annoying me. And uh, and I remember my old man saying, "Oh, you know that's it; it's finished. You know you can't do that. You know, <laughs> uh, 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 just chill out, Dad, and stop this bloody tie rule." It's, it's really because now you're thinking like in, in 2021 yeah it's almost tie is a proper high day and holiday funerals and weddings and yeah, yeah. court appearances I can't, I can't remember last time i wore a tie yeah i can't actually i don't even think i didn't no i didn't wear one even for dad's funeral uh because yeah you know, he'd said don't get dressed up i don't want black i don't want you know yeah just 
Come as yeah. you wish. To, yeah. So that was one of the first things. And then I, I worked really hard with uh, with Silvano, the manager at the time. I said, look, we've got to try and loosen up this service thing as well. Because in those days, the, the Metro D's and the waiters wouldn't talk to guests. Yeah. The guests had to talk to, you know, and you wouldn't really converse. It was, it was very, very stiff. Service was far too stiff and formal for my liking. Um, so that, that was one of the first things I addressed. And then lightening up the menu slowly but surely, you know, and then making it um, more... To my my taste, I'm not saying that it wasn't that it wasn't right. It was, yeah, it was right for the time, and it was great. Um, but food is fashion, isn't it? I mean, that, you know, no matter whether it's the Gavroche or whether it's kind of Nando's, it's important to evolve them. Yeah, but not not go too far away from your roots because Gavroche is French. It's yeah. built on the classics, so you go there. You want to want to you know find indulgent dishes. You want a great sauce, um, and you want super you know cosseted service, but you don't what want to go back come to the, the menu. Oh, the cheese souffle. Of course. The, the cheese souffle. Yeah, I tried taking it off once and it was just like ridiculous. I mean, what's the point? I mean, every other person says, well, oh, can I have the cheese souffle? Can I do <laughs> so we, we just leave it on all the time. I'm sick and tired of it. Well, yeah. I do enjoy eating one every now and then. But, but yeah. yeah. But no, that, that can't come off the menu. The, 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 the sweet omelette Rothschild, which I cooked for you oh, on uh, Sunday brunch, that came off the menu and it will, it will come back, but it, that as well is a favourite. Yeah. So slowly but surely, I, I I changed Le Gavroche, but again, the the service as well, that, that really bugged me. So that the jacket rule as well changed uh, in the mid 90s uh, mid to late 90s i said come on we, we've got to we've got to evolve we've got to move forward yeah so no longer jacket required uh, which is great because you can look smart without wearing a jacket i think we still ask people to to be smart some people dress up they will wear you know wear a bow tie or whatever which is great uh, and others will just come in a lovely pressed shirt which is fine I mean, another of, our, of my guests from Grinning Big Zoo, who is now your best mate, because <laughs> when you appearing on Sunday Brunch, then two of you started to tweet each other. And I've said, because I've never been to the Gavroche, and I've said that, right, Big Zoo and I will go together. You've got to do that. But I'm, I'm going fully booted and suited. I really, really am, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a place that I've, I've always, always wanted to eat at. I am very intrigued to know what what my dining colleague is going to is, is going to roll up in, but uh, it's good to know that that, that it's softened down. So, so the, the service I think is a, is a big change, isn't it? Almost you think yeah. around that time about the mid nineties, which is when we had that explosion of kind of mid range casual dining in mm. the UK. So as a result, then as we were saying that you know because this food is fashion and it evolves, then even at the the highest end of the industry, you still have to look at what's happening and be relevant don't you i think you have to be relevant i mean and it's really interesting that across the water in france where where service is is still in my view a little bit snooty mm. and still very formal especially in the high end restaurants my colleagues there are actually looking at the uk and and how we and look at russia and the other high end restaurants do our service and and they're envious because they they look at the, the you know the service that we offer, which which is mind-blowingly good, I mean, really, really good, mm. uh, on the ball, but very friendly and open and hospitable. Uh, whereas in France, in these high-end restaurants, they're still a little bit up their own backside, uh, <laughs> and you know, and it and it's not conducive to enjoying yourself, to you know, to really enjoying the experience. So they they look at us and and they they're a bit envious and and it is start it is getting better in France. I, yeah. It is getting better, but it's very tough for them. To... How, how is the industry regarded in France because I think now we're 
kind of getting to the point where it's viewed as being a valid profession mm. in the UK. Whereas I know when I sort of started out, it was like, well, you know, what do you really want to do? Yeah. In France, is it? Is it? It's always been a profession in, in mm. terms of you know a, a commendable um, route to go down as a youngster. Yes, I mean it, it's in many ways it's similar. Well, not in many ways. I mean, in one respect, it is similar to what you're saying. Um, if, if you're sort of school leaving age and you don't know what to do, uh, your grades are not great. Yeah, the, the, yeah, there is the option going to catering. Yeah, go to catering college. They'll have you. Yeah, there is that element, but there's also a very very strong element of I am choosing to go into the hospitality industry, either to be a chef or, or front of house, because it is a great career. Yeah, uh, and it is a career path, and and you you can climb up the ladder so quickly in our industry. Yeah. I mean, you know that. Yeah, and you, you can you can earn good money, um, and you can you know become a manager very very quickly, very quickly if you put your head down and you know, manager or head chef or, or or whatever or food and beverage manager, work in hotels or mass catering, whatever. And there are so many so many opportunities and so many avenues. Yeah, um, which is something that we need to get across get that message across you know catering and hospitality industry is not a dead end it certainly isn't it has got so much to offer i think it's a joyous industry i really really mm -hmm. do for all the kind of the you know the the tough bits all industries have tough bits I yeah think, cool. you know, for exactly, years exactly yeah know, hospitality gets pointed out as being tough and Always. long hours and unsociable yeah. hours and you know all all of that there are many other industries out there that have that same issues. I mean, e even hairdressing, for God's sake. Mm. Uh, well, you don't need much of a hairdresser. No idea what that is. You're <laughs> <laughs> saving money there. Thanks. But, but <laughs> they're, they're on their feet 12 hours a day very often. Yeah. We're not the only industry that has, you know, you have to be on your feet long or you know unsociable yeah. hours. Look at look at nursing as well and the care industry. That's tough. Very very. So what what's next then? What happens next with with where the business is then, or, or for your own ambitions, I suppose. Mm. Well, I mean, it's Gavroche is now fifty four years old. Will it be around in another fifty four years? Who knows? <laughs> uh, I mean, my daughter's opened up her own restaurant. Uh, in Notting Hill. And again, was that an inevitability that she would follow you into the industry, do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, ever since she was a, you know, a tiny baby, yeah, she's always said she wanted to be a chef yeah. and be in the industry, which is wonderful. Uh, we didn't push her into it. And uh, if, if anything, we tried to dissuade her, but no. She, and yeah. she's, she is amazing. She, she really is. Yeah. Very, very proud of, of Emily um, and Diego, her husband. So they've got a lovely little restaurant there in, uh, in Notting Hill going really well. I did kind of say to them would there be any chance do you fancy you know yeah doing something here and uh, at gavroche and they say, mm, we want to open our own thing first and so let's see so you know maybe who knows how how difficult has it been obviously with you know with with, with the loss of both your dad and your uncle mm. from a personal level that obviously must have hit you so hard yeah, very hard. I mean, uh, losing uncle uh, at the beginning of the first lockdown. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate, actually. I saw him two days uh, just before he passed. And um, he was a cheeky little so-and-so. He, 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 I'll tell you a little, little, little anecdote, little story. And uh, we were having our Ruth Scholarship uh, meeting and uh, judging at the Waterside Inn. Uh, and uncle was in bed. He was very, very poorly. So I popped in afterwards to just... Uh, you know, give him a kiss and uh, and say hi, uh, and and he was very lucid. And um, there were two nurses in the room, and uh, I said, whispered to him, Uncle, you're lucky. You've got a couple of nice nurses to look after you. 
and his eyes lit up and he went, oh, yes, so lucky. I can't wait for my bed bath. <laughs> the cheeky little so-and-so. And, yeah. I love that. He, he was, yeah, he was, yeah, loved uncle, loved uncle to bits. But, um, yeah, so I was so happy that I did see him before, before yeah. he passed. But it's just tragic. Uh, and, and then dad, and then dad just recently, yeah, I mean, the beginning of the year. And you know what? Yeah, he had a, an amazing life. They yeah. both had an amazing life. You know, that they lived life to the full and enjoyed it to the full. But lockdown, I, th I think, was the beginning of the end for dad. Dad had such, um, had a routine. I think thousands of people would be in the same case as dad. Had a routine at his age. He would get up. You know, he, he wasn't fully mobile. You know, he had, he had issues with his back and his hips. But he would get up. And he would get ready, go to the office. He would spend an hour with his PA, do his bits and bobs, because he was still fairly active yeah, in the yeah. business um, and, and a lot of charity work and work with colleges and such like. And then he would go and have lunch. He would call it a business lunch, but he would have lunch with a mate or whatever and somebody and, and, and chat and then go home and then, you know, it, and maybe do a bit more work at home. Yeah. So he had a routine. Lockdown stopped that. He had no more reason. Uh, and, and, you know, quite a few times when I'd pop in and see him and, and I was super careful staying away from him, he'd say, come on, give me a hug. I said, no, dad, I'd rather not because you know, I've been about and I've yeah, seen yeah. other people, you know, and, 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 you know, you know, a couple of times he'd say, but phew, I've not got out of bed today. I said, but why? Get out of bed. Come on. You know, watch a bit of telly, go in the garden, sit and sit and enjoy the sunshine, you know, have a cigar and just, you know, enjoy yeah. yourself. He says, no, why? There's no reason. And, you know, and I think thousands of people were in the same, yeah. same case. No reason to get out of bed. No reason. And, and just lockdown took out the joy of life. Uh, and, and that was such. Yeah, such, I, I, I think that's so true. I mean, you know, fortunately, you know, my mum and dad are both still here. My dad is sort of pretty old and a bit frail these days. Lockdown has been fine for him. Mm. He's quite happy to kind of potter around, read the paper to cover to cover, do a little bit of gardening, have a nap, watch an obscure documentary on BBC4. Whereas my mum is massively active and I think lockdown yeah. has hit her so much harder yeah, because yeah. like you say, it's taken away that routine and that ability to go and socialise and do things yeah. that, that she wanted to do. Yeah, very, very tough. So, so now you now you sit at the at the helm of it all. What happens? What 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 do you see? What what's what's mm. gonna happen in five years? Where are you and I gonna be in five years? <laughs> Where, when I when we do the the next one and we invite guests back in that five year one and it's mm. five years' time and we say, right, okay, so five years ago, you know, you'd, you'd unfortunately just lost your dad and your uncle, you're at yeah. the helm of the Gavroche. Where are we gonna be? I don't I really don't know, Simon. I mean, I I try not to look too much ahead. And and there's so much going on in my world at the moment, anyway. Yeah. Um, so you know, it it is it's almost day day to day, uh, especially you know, still business wise, we're not out of you know out of trouble. Yeah. You know, we're 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 only just making ends meet, uh, and then we've got the you know the major staffing issues and such like. So it it is it's just keeping keeping things going at the moment seems to be. But I've always got little things little in the pipeline like i'm launching my my gin next week or this week yeah uh, so i've been busy making some gin um uh you know so i'm busy doing a bit of tv work so there's a, a tv show coming out soon on, on the food network all about something which i love which is french country cooking um so you know things like that there's always i need something yeah and i think we all need something yeah to keep your mind active to keep keep you going keep you you know a purpose Will you ever retire ah <sighs> 
Yes, I would like to think so. But I think even when you do retire, you need something to keep you going. Yeah. And I would love to retire and be able to go fishing more often because fishing is a, is a hobby and, and something which I love doing. Uh, so, yeah, do more fishing. Maybe write another book, but I've got to find the time to do that. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. But we've got one thing to do, one, one last little fun thing to do. And th- I'm, this is one I'm really, really looking forward to. We ask our guests every single episode hmm. to take us somewhere um, that they probably haven't been. It can be a restaurant. It could be a coffee shop. It could be a patisserie. It could, mm. it could be anything at all. But it's somewhere that if you and I were going to go somewhere and say, Simon, somewhere in the world I want to take you to is, where are you going to take us to? Right. Okay. Well, I would like to take you to somewhere that I've been before uh, and my mind was blown. I, I think I know you well enough to know that you would thoroughly enjoy this place. If you say Old Trafford, I'm getting up and leaving. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not Old Trafford. Uh, <laughs> and I wouldn't even do Old Trafford the away end for you. I did that for a West Ham friend of mine. I actually stood... That's cruel. That's uh, it cruel. was. Yeah, yeah. but United won 6-1, so I was happy. Um, but I had to contain my joy at the away end. We'll edit that out. <laughs> anyway, um, no, I would take you to somewhere which I think that you would appreciate 100%, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love. And it's a proper real french bistro and one that that i think is is sadly it's sadly dying there are less and less of these places and it's in arles mm-hmm. which is in provence a beautiful medieval city uh, it's in the center of the city so there's there's hardly any traffic because they they don't let uh, too many cars in so it's almost pedestrianized and it's called le galoubet and it is run by franck or frank <laughs> in English, Frank sounds better, doesn't it? Uh, and he made his he made his fortune, I think, in uh, in the French stock exchange. Yeah, and he's from Arles, and he just bought this lovely old derelict place and turned it into the most beautiful bistro. Yeah. No pretense, no 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 fancy stuff. The menu is on a chalkboard. Fresh ingredients every day. He goes to the market and just buys what he can and what's available, and the drinks are all local wines. It is incredibly, uh, inc- the value for money there is just like mind boggling. Now, my recent visit, I, uh, there were tillin on the uh, menu. Uh, tillin are wedge clams. You don't find them that much in England. Yeah. They're very tiny, tiny little yeah. clams. And you get them all around the Mediterranean basin. And I remember as a child, going with a, a rake and picking them up and eating them. And he just pan fries them or sautés them with chopped garlic, chopped um, black olives, parsley, uh, olive oil, and then a splash of pastis, and you just get them in the shell. And I had a huge bowl of these, and they're tiny. They're tiny. It takes about an hour to eat a plateful. Yeah, but the flavour is immense, and you get you get all your hands covered in in oil, and your chin dribbling with all the juices. It, it's it's proper real food. And then snails, obviously, obviously. scuggle, yeah, scuggle, uh, and he does them braised in red wine. And with bacon. Wow. And, and I tell you, I tell you, you need the bread to d- dip in the sauce. He does tuna steak like you've never tasted before. And the last time I went, I had a tuna steak served rare, uh, the most amazing Mediterranean tuna, and on a salad of sautéed beans. But I've got a bugbear with beans. Uh-huh. Yeah. Chefs that don't cook them enough. Yeah, yeah. When they squeak under the teeth, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still raw. Yeah. The best way to eat beans 
is actually saute them and they get a bit of color and they caramelize. And the flavor of those beans is like you've never tasted before. And a little drizzle of red wine vinegar on there and shallots, mind-blowingly good. A creme caramel, not a creme brulee. Creme brulee is too fancy. Okay. A proper creme caramel. Uh-huh. Yeah, where the caramel just floods the plate. Oh. And a few raspberries on the side. I tell you, Franck is the perfect host. He comes around to every table and he'll top up your drinks. And if the bottle's empty and he sees that you haven't finished, he'll just give you another little glass. He'll, he'll say, on the house, enjoy it. He is, to me, he is exactly what hospitality is all about. Yeah. Now, you and I could have a lunch there and just watch the world go by. And before you know it, it would be time to have a pastis and then have dinner. You could spend the day there. I am actually going to pack up my things now. I'm going to book us some flights. And uh, we'll go, that sounds amazing. But that is living the dream, isn't it? That is, you're right. Hospitality, great food, simple food, local ingredients. Ah, Michelle, amazing. You know, it's it's... It's a joy always to kind of hear you speak about food and the passion for for the industry. And, you know, you are you are food royalty, but you always remain the nicest, calmest, generous human being who will always give time to people. But, you know, hospitality is about generosity. Yeah. Generosity comes from the heart. And, and I think hospitality is all about that. It's about giving from the heart. And, and what, but you know what? What you get back is immense yeah because I mean, you know you run a restaurant and, and and when when your guests are happy and they've enjoyed the food they've got a rest it, it's an it's amazing the feeling best feeling yeah it is it really is a pleasure to see you thank you so much for coming on grilling and um big zoo and i will be in <laughs> big zoo said you do do fried chicken that's, that's <laughs> what he's asking <laughs> a pleasure to see you my friend thank you so much for coming on thank you great to see you Thanks so much to Michelle for joining us on Grilling. I mean, that is a tremendous story, isn't it? About the I don't know, the whole history of British hospitality and that great French attitude to, to food and drink. A joyous human being to spend time with. And hopefully we've given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber barbecue. Head to Weber.com for plenty more recipe ideas, including orange and honey spiced prawns. And don't forget, check out that £50 discount to their Grill Academies at Weber.com forward slash grilling. So do review, rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>